Why don't you open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 8, and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 1 Samuel chapter 8. <clears throat> title of this morning's sermon is, When God Says Obey Their Voice. When God Says Obey Their Voice. Look at me at verse 4. All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you're old and advanced in years, and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Verse 10, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before its chariots. He'll appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He'll take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He'll take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. Verse 17, he'll take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you'll cry out because of your king, whom you've chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, so that we may be, we may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice for the third time and make them a king. Samuel said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. You may be seated. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for these few sermons we've had, I suppose what we might call a brief series on you giving us our will to our detriment. I think this is, I've tried to go chronologically through your word as we've looked at these the different examples. I think that's a very fitting passage to con, uh, conclude this with because it must be one of the best examples in Scripture of you giving uh, to man what is to his own detriment. And there's great application for us, Lord. We can push, even as I, I saw Pastor Nathan talking about in Sunday school this morning, we can push to get what we want um, when it isn't your will for us or not your perfect will for us, Lord. And so help us to be sensitive to this. I do pray that these sermons would drive this home for each of us. I know that it challenges me in my own life to think that I could um, push after you've said no until you change your mind, and in a sense, or allow not necessarily change your mind where it becomes your will for me, but change your mind and that you allow me to have what you previously said no to. Give us all a sensitivity to that, Lord, soft, receptive hearts to your will. Uh, I pray these would be sermons we'd apply to our lives that would go with us beyond just this day, Lord, but um, for the rest of our, our, our time on this side of heaven, being aware of the, of the need to be receptive to your will, Lord, and to seek you through prayer and be submitted to you. And so help us to learn from this example. Use me as your vessel to speak to your people, Lord. We thank you so much for your word. 
want to bring it fully to bear on this topic, and we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Amen, amen. So, as I prayed uh, on Sunday mornings, we had been in Luke 15. We took a brief pause to look at some examples of individuals doing what, or look examples of God doing what we see the Father doing in Luke 15, where the Son comes to him and says, give me my inheritance, clearly to the Son's detriment because of how destructive uh, that inheritance was to him, how he squandered it, lived sinfully. The Father still gave it to him. And I think that reveals something about our relationships with the Lord that I wanted to sort of unpack or elaborate on by considering other examples in Scripture. This will be the last example, the, um, until, and this morning will be the last example, and then we'll be back in Luke 15 next week. I think this is so important because there's this mistaken notion about God. We could believe that if He doesn't want us doing something, then He's going to stop us. And that's not necessarily true. There can be times where he closes doors that we can't open, but it does seem that there are times that there are closed doors that we keep pounding on, and then he opens them for us and allows, them, allows us to go through to our own detriment. And we have seen a few examples, so that you don't think this is my opinion. First, we saw God let Moses take Aaron with him when he was incredibly reluctant to go back to Egypt on his own. We saw God give the Israelites meat when they asked for it, after repeatedly complaining about the manna. We saw God let Balaam go with Balak, after God had clearly told Balaam not to go with Balak. And then last week, we saw the two and a half tribes able to settle outside the promised land. So we haven't been looking at examples of people sinning. That wouldn't be a hard thing to do. Scripture is filled with examples of people sinning. We have been looking at examples of people doing things that were to their own detriment, that God allowed them to do because they kept pushing or insisting. And this is an incredible example of it this morning in 1 Samuel 8. Go ahead and look with me at verse 4. The elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. Samuel was the, the last judge of the people, and he's also the first prophet now. And so they say to him, Behold, you're old, your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And what is their motivation here? What is their motivation? What does it say? It's not a trick question or anything. They want to look like the other nations. Does anyone think that's particularly odd for a people that have been called to be what? (laughs) Unlike all the other nations or holy or set apart. I mean, that's what the word holy does. So there's a sense in which they're coming to Samuel and they're saying, we don't want to be holy or set apart. We want to be like all the other nations. And one of the ways that Israel was to be set apart, was to be holy or set apart from the other nations, was that they were not to have an earthly king. God was to be their king. This was one way that they were going to be different, and it meant not having an earthly king, but they said they wanted one. Verse 6, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. Samuel prayed to the Lord, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. I don't know how many times I have read this in my Christian life. I've always found it to be a particularly uh, tender insight into God's heart to see him talking about being rejected by man here. I don't think God uh, so much said this angrily, as he said this, um, 
you know, perhaps hurt, you might say, or displeased at least. The, it, it just seems to be the opposite of what I would expect. I would not expect the God of the, the heavens and earth, the creator of the universe, uh, to be the one rejected by man. I would expect him to reject man, not the other way around. But right here, we, we see this very sad moment where God himself talks about being rejected as king, an un- unimaginable thought to me that sinful fallen man would reject God and not the other way around, but that's what we see here. Verse 8, and then he says, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. So now God tells Samuel he's experiencing the same rejection that God himself has experienced, and then he says, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king over them. Now, I just want you to notice God's graciousness here in verse 9. If, if, he, was, if he was, let's say, more like me and just wanted to teach the people a lesson, he would just say, fine, here's your king. And he would give them that king without first doing what? Graciously letting them know what it's going to be like when they receive this king. I think about God's patience, and it's clearly on display here, because if he wanted to be completely unmerciful toward them, he would just give them the king the moment that they ask. But he, I mean, considering he's the one rejected, you, you would expect him not to be this patient. But instead, he first says, you, you can give him a king, but we need to let them know, or I want you to let them know how badly it's going to be for them. Warn them about all the terrible things that you're going to see their king do or their kings do to them over the years that they have one. And we don't have to read all those verses, but I will say, we don't have to read all those verses a second time. I read them during the scripture reading, but I will let you know that all of the things that God said these earthly kings would do to them, you get to see those kings do throughout Samuel with Saul, and then in Kings and Chronicles, as they are exactly like God warned that they would be selfish individuals, they were awful, awful and uh, terrible for the nation. Go ahead and skip to verse 18. In that day, in the day that you have a king, you're going to cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations. For the second time, they, this request to be unholy as a people, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So right here we see another reason that they want an earthly king. They want someone that will lead them in, in war, that will go before them, that they, can, that they can see, that will fight their battles on their behalf. And the reason that this is so sad is this, is exactly what God has been doing for them. They are asking for an earthly king that will do the things that God has been doing for them. I mean, just think what this would be like as a parent if you had your children come and complain about something and say that they want something else when in fact it is what you have been doing for them. And that's what we see here. And just to show you an example, look, one chapter to the left, this request follows the heels of what took place only one chapter earlier Look in chapter 7, verse 10. God had just won this spectacular battle for the nation. 1 Samuel 7, verse 10. Samuel was offering up the burnt offering 
the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. And then notice this. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. Now, does that sound like the kind of king you would want going out before you fighting your battles for you? I mean, what could, what could you be left desiring that God isn't doing when you see him thundering on their behalf, to, defeating the enemy? Could, could any king do any better job for them than what we see God doing in this account? <clears throat> Yet it wasn't good enough for Israel. And so the truth is, even though they say that they want this king to go before them, and, and you say, well, it, it sounds like they want a king. They don't really want a king. They already had a king, right? They had a king in God. They had a king who would fight their battles for them. What they want is the image of a king, they don't want to walk by what? They want to walk by what? <laughs> they don't want to walk by faith. They want to walk by sight. They wanted someone that, that they could see. They wanted someone they could put their confidence in. That as the troops went out to battle, this is their champion that stands out front. In a sense, what Goliath was to the Philistines, this king is going to be for the Israelites. And if you want to get an idea of how badly it went for them, when Philistia's champion, Goliath, went before the Philistine army, who should have went before the Israelite army? Who was their champion? Who was the Goliath of the Israelites? But he remained just sitting on his throne and allowed the little shepherd boy to to go before them. So what they really want was this image of a king, someone that they could see that would be physically impressive. You notice that there is no hint whatsoever of what this king will be like spiritually. It is all about what he will be like physically. And so what did they get? A physically impressive but spiritually bankrupt individual. 1 Samuel 9 verse 2, Saul was a handsome. I mean, I guess you can look one chapter to the right and see the king they got. Look at the description physically. He's a handsome young man, not a man among the people of Israel, more handsome than him. From his shoulders upward, he's taller than any of the people. The next chapter, chapter 10, verse 23, Saul stood among the people. He's taller than any of the people. From his shoulders upward, Samuel said, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? And don't be misled by that. When it says whom the Lord has chosen, it doesn't mean that this is God's will for Saul to be the king. It means this is the king whom the Lord has chosen based on what the people wanted. There's none like him among all the people, physically speaking. There was definitely plenty of people that would have been better candidates, spiritually speaking. None like him among all the people. And how do the people respond? It says, they shouted, long live the king. And they were thrilled because he was everything they wanted, because everything they wanted was bound up in what he was physically. And physically, he was an incredibly impressive individual. Now, because Saul was such a failure... You could read verses about Saul being the one the Lord has chosen and then say, well, you know, did God make a mistake? Why would God choose a king who was going to to be so poor? But he wasn't chosen because he was what God wanted. He was chosen because he was what the people wanted. So I'm stressing this because there's a sense in which God doubly gave the people what they wanted in this chapter. He didn't just give them a king. He gave them the king that they wanted. They wanted a king, and he didn't just give them that. They wanted a king that was physically impressive, 
and he gave him the king that was physically impressive. Look in verse 21, 1 Samuel 8, verse 21. When Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. So God, so Samuel tells God everything the people said. But briefly look back at verse 19. It says, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. I mean, what word comes to mind when you see the people respond that way? Yeah, I mean, there's a multitude of words. Arrogance, what else? Rebellious, obstinate, stubborn. I mean, t- talk about rebelliousness. No, we will have a king over us. No, we will not listen to you, Samuel. And as God's messenger to choose or to rebel against Samuel or choose not to listen to him was to rebel against God or choose not to listen to God. Now, because of their rebelliousness, the reason I want you to see verse 19 a second time, because of everything we've read, because of their rebelliousness, their obstinance, their stubbornness, because of how badly it would be for them to have a king, if you didn't already know this account, because I know it's very familiar to us, what would you expect God to do, and what would you expect God not to do? What does God typically do when people refuse to obey him? Or another way to say it is, what does God typically do when people disobey him? He disciplines them. So considering their defiance, their refusal to obey him, what would you expect God to do right here? Discipline them what does he do instead? Shockingly, he gives them what they want. And I'm telling you, it is a very sobering account. It is one that all of us should take heed to that when we keep pounding on that door defiantly, there could come a time that God opens it for us. And we can't turn around and say that it was God's will for us to go through it. We have to acknowledge that he wanted that door closed, but we kept pounding on it. And then finally, in our free moral agency, he allows us to walk through. It was never God's will for us to walk through that door. It was just him allowing our obstinance or stubbornness to reign over his will. Look at verse 22. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice. Do not obey my voice, and do not expect the people to obey my voice. You go ahead and obey their voice, and make him a king. And then Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. How did this go for them? How did this go for the Israelites? It went poorly. This brings us to lesson one. When God says obey their voice, it doesn't always go like we expect When God says obey their voice, it doesn't always go like we expect. We've spent a few weeks talking about God giving us what we want to our detriment. And this is one of the most sobering examples in Scripture. They got exactly what they wanted. They got the strong, tall, physically impressive king to go before them and lead them into battle. And so now they expect that they're going to be able to fearlessly fight their battles. Courageously, they will never have to be concerned about going before an enemy again, right? Do me a favor and turn to 1 Samuel 13 briefly. 1 
Let's see how this battle goes for the Israelites with the earthly king that they wanted. 1 Samuel 13, verse 5, the Philistines mustered. Here it is. They're going to battle with their king to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth Haven. And when the men of Israel saw their king go before them, they were filled with courage and confidence. Is that what it says? When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people who for the people were hard pressed. Look at this. This is embarrassing. It's almost embarrassing to read this. To be honest with you, picturing grown men, soldiers of war, acting this way. And I'm not saying that uh, you know I wouldn't be terrified going to battle, but picture grown men expected to fight, acting like we're about to read, hiding themselves in caves and holes and rocks and in tombs and in cisterns or wells. Some Hebrews even crossed the fords of the Jordan. They even swam across the river to the land of Gad and Gilead to get away from the Philistines. Saul was still a Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. They're hiding in caves, holes, behind rocks, jumping into tombs with dead bodies or skeletons. They're jumping down into wells or cisterns, where I'd almost wonder if they would be afraid of being able to get out, but they'd rather do that than go to battle with their new earthly king swimming across the river in fear. And you say, well, that's, that's just the people who weren't with Saul. It must have been a lot better for those people who are with Saul, right? What does it say at the, in the verse about those who were with their physically impressive earthly king? Look at the end of the verse. The people who were with him were following him, trembling. They thought it'd be so great to have this earthly king out in front of them. And it was a nightmare. It wasn't any better. It was nothing like they expected. And so what's the point? The point is, sometimes when we get what we want, if it is not what God wanted us to have, it does not go like we would expect. It can even be worse for us. Contrast these two battles we looked at very quickly. 1 Samuel 7, you don't have to turn back there. They go to war with the Philistines. Courageously, bravely, God is thundering on their behalf, giving them this incredible victory with the battle in 1 Samuel 13, when Saul, not God, Saul is their king, and they're cowering and fearful and, and terrified. It is quite the contrast. Getting what we want when it's not God's will for us doesn't go like we'd expect. Moses taking Aaron with him, the Israelites getting the meat they supposedly wanted, Balaam going with Balak, that definitely didn't go like Balaam thought it would go. The two and a half tribes settling outside the promised land, it definitely did not go for them like they thought it would go. And now the Israelites getting a king. I want to show you something incredible. You can leave 1 Samuel, we won't return to it, and turn to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. So after Psalms is Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes. So toward the middle of your Bible, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. This will be a nice conclusion for this little series. Ecclesiastes 6, we'll start at verse 1. Solomon writes, and as king, I'm sure he has seen plenty of evils in his day, but he says, there is an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavily on mankind. And if I just get your attention for a moment, and I asked you, what are the evils that lie heavily on mankind? What are the evils that plague man? What are some of the evils we want to get rid of? 
I mean, if I said you can choose one evil to rid this world of, what would come to mind? Huh? What? What, what, what sin or what evil in particular? Greed, pride. Let's keep going. Murder, anger, selfishness. You know, we could spend all day here, and you're not going to come up with what he said. We could spend all day guessing, and you will never come up with the evil that Solomon says rests heavily on man. Look in verse 2 to see what it is. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. And just picture that before we read the rest of the verse. Someone who has everything they want. There's nothing that they desire. Everything they have desired, they have been given. Wealth, possessions, honor, so they're famous. They're respected. They have prestige. They have all the possessions they want. They have all the wealth they want to buy the things that they want. There's nothing that they lack. And Solomon says, this is the evil. God doesn't give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. And then just in case you're wondering, if it's really that evil for a second time to make sure you don't miss it, God repeats, it is a grievous evil. For God to give someone everything they want, but then not have the power to enjoy it. And this brings us to lesson two. God can give us what we want, part one, but remove the power to enjoy it. Have you ever thought of this before? Has this ever crossed your mind? That God could give you what you want? but then take away your ability to be able to enjoy it or find satisfaction or contentment from it? When the, the situation that had occurred uh, that I had some familiarity with that I think of when I read this account was when dad was receiving radiation treatment. He, they told him he wouldn't be able to swallow. And so they'd given him this feeding tube. And I just thought, you know, if dad has a feeding tube and he's fighting cancer then I'm sure they're going to just pump him full of the, the most, you know, nutritious foods that, that uh, he could have. Instead, they ended up giving him this very bland, uh, cheap kind of just carbs, basically, to, to give him energy. My understanding was that if, if you really make someone very strong and give them a lot of vitamins and minerals, it also fights the cancer or strengthens the cancer because cancer is part of your body. And so they said, and I looked at this can of this, this stuff they were going to give my dad, and I said, this is some of, this is like empty calories. I mean, there's nothing to this. There's no vitamins. There's no nutrients. Why, why is this what we're putting into his feeding tube? Why, why wouldn't we be giving him something that's incredibly nutritious? And they said, well, because if we give your dad a bunch of vitamins and minerals that strengthen his body, the, the tumors are part of his body, and it will also strengthen the tumor, which we're trying to weaken right now while we're giving him this radiation and this chemo. And so it, it, cancer is just an incredibly, uh, incredibly ugly thing to have to watch someone experience. And so they're just shuttling. We we're supposed to shuttle all these empty calories into my dad. And the thing that I thought about this was, you know, this is the one time, why don't we eat healthier, just to be honest? We just don't like the taste of it, you know? There's junk food that we want to eat instead, and I thought, you know, this season that my dad has this, this feeding tube, this is the one time when he could eat the healthiest stuff imaginable, 
and he can't taste it. So it doesn't, it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really matter if it doesn't taste good for him. And so that's kind of what comes to mind when I read this, is that sometimes, you know, like the way my dad could have been given the healthiest, tastiest food through that tube, he wouldn't have had the ability to enjoy it. You, you could have given him stuff that, you know, we, we would love to just have for every single meal, but it wouldn't really matter to him because he couldn't taste it. In other words, no matter what you gave dad, he just didn't have the power to enjoy it because it was going through this tube. And that's kind of the situation in our lives where God can give us something, but he just doesn't give us the power or the ability to enjoy it. And can you really imagine much worse than what this verse is describing? God giving you what you've wanted, but then taking away the ability to enjoy it. And it reminds me of what we've already read. Let me briefly review pretty quickly when the Israelites got the meat in the wilderness. We read the account in Numbers, but then there's commentary in the Psalms about what happened. You don't have to turn there. Just let this wash over you so you catch the idea. Psalm 28, 27, God rained meat on the Israelites like dust, winged birds like the sand of the sea. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. They ate and were well filled for he gave them, it says, God gave them what they craved. God gave them what they craved, not what he craved or desired for them. And then the next verse, before they satisfied their craving while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of the Lord rose against them and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. And it's an interesting irony to contrast these two phrases. Verse 29 says, they ate and were filled. And then verse 30 says, before they satisfied their craving. That's exactly what we're talking about. Where you get what you want, you eat until you're full, but you're not satisfied. It describes so well what happens when God gives us something he doesn't really want us to have. He doesn't let us find much pleasure in it, if any. Psalm 106, 14 they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert, referring to them wanting meat. Psalm 106, 15, God gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. And again, I don't think this is speaking physically. I think it's spiritually. Other translations say God sent leanness to their souls. What does that mean? It means they were eating physically, but wasting away spiritually. Eating physically, but their soul is starving. Satisfied physically, but continuing to hunger and feel empty, spiritually speaking. And this is what can happen to us when we get what we want, but it's not what God wants us to have. Back in Ecclesiastes 3, look at verse, or Ecclesiastes 6, look at verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children which in the ancient world would be an unimaginable blessing. If a man fathers a hundred children and he lives many years so that the days of his years are many, so he has a long life as well, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, so he still doesn't enjoy what he has. He has no burial. I say, listen to this, a stillborn child is better off than he. So how terrible is it in Solomon's eyes to get what you want but not be able to enjoy it? It would be better not to even be born. 
it would be better to be a stillborn versus go through that miserable existence of getting what you want but having no pleasure in it. Skip to verse 6. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, so he's going to live 2,000 years, yet enjoy no good or not enjoy his blessings, do not all go to the one place. In other words, we all die, we all go to the grave. Verse 7, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. He's eating, he's consuming all these things he desires in life, going through life, picking up this and that. And It says his appetite, it has the idea, it's, it's a metaphor, it's a euphemism that he's consuming these things, going through life, getting what he wants, but his appetite is never satisfied. He just continues to crave even more because God doesn't allow him to enjoy it. Now, the question is, how can we enjoy the blessings we have? And the answer is one chapter to the left. Look in Ecclesiastes 5. So before Solomon talks about the misery of people being unable to enjoy what they have, in Ecclesiastes 6, he provides three verses at the end of chapter 5 that teach people that if we are in his will, we can enjoy the gifts he gives us. Look at Ecclesiastes 5, verse 18. Solomon says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and to find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. And there's, this is an incredible verse right here. If you can focus on this, just take it with you, whether you need to highlight it, circle it, underline it, there is so much wisdom contained in this single verse here about what provides lasting contentment or satisfaction on this side of heaven. Or what what is the phrase Solomon uses repeatedly through Ecclesiastes for life on this side of heaven? He calls it life what? Under the sun. That's referring to earthly lives that are lived under the sun. And right here, he tells you, if you want to be satisfied and have enjoyment— These are the three things to focus on. First, laboring faithfully or working hard. Second, and you can see that where he says, find enjoyment in all the toil. So find enjoyment in your work. But as a truly blessed person who can find enjoyment in the work that he does because we spend so much of our lives working. Second, enjoy simple blessings. What are the simple blessings that he mentions there? What are the simple blessings he says there? Eating and drinking. Was, the potluck, was today's potluck announced during announcements? Did Pastor Nathan mention it? And then the you know, meeting to follow? Okay. So today, believe it or not, few things in this life are more enjoyable than you being able to go to the fellowship hall, sit down, and have a meal with friends and family. Few things are more significant or more blessed than that. And Solomon says if you can find blessing and joy in that, then you're going to be a very content or satisfied person. Enjoy the simple blessings like eating and drinking. And then the third thing, he says, view these blessings as gifts that God has given us. And then keep that in mind. So go through, if, if you're going to view these blessings as gifts God's given you, that basically means going through life being what? It's my, huh? Thankful, that's it. This is Solomon's way of saying you'll be content or satisfied if you go through life being thankful for what God's given you. Now, keep that in mind and look at verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions, and then notice this. This is the opposite of chapter 6. 
when God has given you the power to enjoy these. God gives the power to enjoy these and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil or work. This is the gift of God. So this is the opposite of chapter 6. This is someone who's given the power to enjoy the blessings or gifts that God has given. And this brings us to the next part of lesson two. God can give us what we want with the power to enjoy it. With the power to enjoy it. Is that correct? Is that what it says in the bulletin? That's what I put in the email? Okay, then that's my... Is, it, is that how it looks in the bulletin? What does it say in the bulletin? Does it say, with the power to enjoy it? Okay, okay. All right, thank you. Then I apologize to the sound people. I sent them the wrong lessons, but at least it looks right in your bulletin. So God gives us the power to enjoy it. I just want you to see in these two chapters back to back that God can take away the power to enjoy the blessings he's given or gifts he's given, and he can give us the power to enjoy the gifts that he has given. Now, sometimes in Scripture, wealth or possessions or riches can sound so bad, you almost wonder if we're talking about leprosy, right? Like, riches can sound so negative, it's almost like you want to avoid riches as much as you'd want to avoid, you know, go home and get rid of all your wealth and possessions. But in the verse, notice it says, God has given wealth and possessions. God has given wealth and possessions. They're gifts from Him. So that's not the issue. So what is the issue then? with wealth and possessions. If it's not the wealth and possessions themselves, what's the issue? The issue is striving to enjoy the gifts apart from the giver. Let me say that one more time. The issue is striving to enjoy any of the gifts God has given us apart from the giver of those gifts. And what does God do? I would say graciously because he loves us, He doesn't allow you to enjoy those gifts apart from him. And this is why you should never envy the wealthy, the rich, the famous, or powerful who don't know Christ because they don't have the peace, they don't have the contentment, they don't have the joy to enjoy those blessings that he has given them. Don't ever envy the wicked. Don't ever envy the rich or the famous or the powerful because they don't have what you can have through Christ, which is peace and joy on this side of heaven. And so God prevents us from enjoying the gifts he's given us if we attempt to enjoy them apart from him because he wants to drive us to him. It is one of his graces to do that. I mean, could you imagine what it would be like if God let you experience perpetual joy and happiness without him? Could there be a worse curse for people than to go through this life feeling that they have everything this life offers only to die and be dead but a couple seconds and have to stand before the Lord and find out that they missed out on everything because they lived this life apart from Christ. At the end of the verse, look at the words, that is the gift of God. And I want you to understand what this correctly, what this means and doesn't mean. It says, this is the gift of God. Wealth and possessions are gifts, but that's not the gift he's referring to. The gift is being able to enjoy the gifts. (laughs) When it says this is the gift of God, the gift that God gives you is the ability to enjoy what he's given you. Look at verse 19 through that lens. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions, that's not the gift, and power to enjoy them and to accept his law and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. 
So what is one of God's greatest gifts he gives us? The power or ability to enjoy the other gifts he's given us, right? What is the worst, one of the worst punishments God could give someone? The inability to enjoy the gifts that he has given us. So the gift of God is the power or ability for three important things in life. First, enjoying the wealth and possessions he's given us. Second, I mean, it's right in the verse. I'm not, I'm not coming up with this on my own. The gift of God is the power or ability to enjoy what's in that verse, wealth and possessions he's given us. Second, it says accepting our lot in life. What does it mean to accept your lot in life? It means to be submitted to God and say, this is what you have for me, and I receive it joyfully. It refers to being content in whatever season you're experiencing and not strive to be outside God's will for your life. And second, being able to accept our lot in life. And then third, it says rejoicing in our toil, again, which means enjoying our work. It is wonderful to be able to enjoy the work that God has called us to. To have these three things is to be very blessed, and God is the only one who can give that to us. Look at our last verse, verse 20. He will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Now, when it says he will not much remember the days of his life, that has to be interpreted. This almost sounds um, pretty dismal, but it has to be interpreted in light of the book of Ecclesiastes, which basically teaches you that your life is what? Miserable. Okay, and so because your life is so bad, what don't you want to do with it? Remember it. That's what he's saying here. That's, think, of the, think of the context. Think of the book, Ecclesiastes 6, 12. While he lives the few days of his vain life. That's the lens through which Solomon's looking at this life. If you can understand that lens with which Solomon views this life, then you can interpret this verse correctly. So here's what Solomon says about this life. Ecclesiastes 6, 12. While he lives the days of his vain life, Ecclesiastes 7, 15. In my vain life, I've seen everything. Ecclesiastes 9, 9. All the days of your vain life that he's given you. Solomon was one of the most miserable people to ever live, and he'd also been given more gifts than anyone had ever been given, but God took away the power for him to enjoy them. And so when, God, when Solomon says, he will not remember much, he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Solomon is saying that God will keep you occupied with joy or gladness in your heart so you won't remember just how miserable or difficult your life has been. Listen to the way the Amplified words it. For he will not often consider the troubled days of his life. But when we have a relationship with the Lord, we're able to enjoy the gifts he's given us to offset the trials and suffering that all of us have to experience on this side of heaven. Now, let me show you a powerful contrast. Look at verse 17. Ecclesiastes 5, look at verse 17. Moreover, all his days, this man, look at this. This must be one of the most depressing descriptions of someone's life. He eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. I don't think I could find a more depressing description of someone's life. And this is the unbeliever. We know it's the unbeliever because it says he eats, and here's the thing, he's not turning the lights off to eat in the dark. That's not, it's not like he doesn't want to see his food. When it says he eats in darkness, this is not a physical commentary. This is a spiritual commentary. It's talking about the light of the gospel has not been shined on him, 
And so he lives a life of spiritual darkness. He experiences much vexation or frustration. He's sick, he's angry, he's miserable. The darkness is simply a metaphor for the gloom in his life because he's living separate or apart from the Lord. And I'll show you something that makes this more interesting. Do your Bibles have a heading around verses 8 or 10? What is the heading in your Bibles around verses 8 or 10? The vanity of wealth and honor. Anything like riches are meaningless. What? Wealth does not satisfy. Do you know who's in verse 17? The rich man. Verse 17 is about the rich man. You're looking at a great example of what we're talking about, somebody who's been given so much but just sits there in his mansion or having his fancy meal in one of the most dismal-sounding situations imaginable. It's the description of a rich man's terrible existence because he's unable to enjoy his wealth and possessions without God. In contrast, the unbeliever in verse 17, all his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger with the believer in verse 20, he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. That's the believer versus the unbeliever. Quite the difference. Now, my hope and prayer is that you can enjoy the gifts the Lord has given you because you know the giver himself. You have been reconciled to the giver through his son, Jesus Christ. I want to conclude with this. We should love the Lord. We should accept his will for our lives. We should enjoy the gifts he gives us. If we focus on the gifts more than the giver, then what sin do we commit? Idolatry. To focus on the gift more than the giver, to elevate the gift above the giver, is to commit the sin of idolatry, and we will not be able to enjoy those gifts. If we accept the gifts, but we still want more, we're guilty of covetousness and discontentment, and we will not be able to enjoy the gifts. But if we submit to God and use what he gives us for his glory, then we can enjoy life and the blessings and gifts he's given us. I will be up front after service. If you have any questions about anything I've shared or I can pray for you in any way, I'd consider it a privilege to speak with you. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your word, the wonderful truths it gives us about contentment, about joy, about the power to experience the gifts you give us in the way you desire us to experience them really only through a relationship with you or through the give, a relationship with the giver himself. And so, Lord, I pray that we would never elevate the gifts above the giver. I pray that we would strive to enjoy all you've given us through a relationship with you and especially find contentment and joy in those simpler things in life, whether it's meals with friends, whether it's the work that you've called us to. I would pray for anyone who sits here today who doesn't know your son, Jesus Christ, who has attempted or who has been living the book of Ecclesiastes. Really, I think this book is a record of the person who would live apart from Christ, that those people would be convicted, Lord, that they would see their need for Christ and strive to live in relationship with him. We thank you for this time and pray these things in his name. Amen.